Okay, we are live. Good Shabbos. Kitetse, 1714 is the 14th of the 14th of September. Ten. And Joshua, I don't know if you know, Ten. but Ten. today, and only today, if this portion falls on the 14th of Elul, there is an extra piece of Haftarah that Chabad reads. Only if this Shabbat is the 14th of Elul. We might want to read that later. Cool. Um, have that with me at the moment, but um, I look. If, you, if you've got it, that'd be great. I, it's right at the end of the Haftarah reading in if you've got a the director's cut, basically. If you've got the director's cut. Yeah. Special edition. Um, yes, key today, uh, when you go out. The uh, we like to say at Bella Torah that um, the Torah is really all about Messiah. Which is true. Um, sometimes a little harder to see. I found this week's Torah portion to be full of stuff, either about Messiah or things the Messiah has said, even things people said about Messiah that wasn't positive. This week's portion is um, loaded with stuff about Messiah. I mean, um, so someone give me something in this week's portion that's about Messiah. Right. So we had the reference in this week's portion. Um, Paul refers to this passage explicitly, but quotes it. I'm talking about um, whoever hangs in a tree is a curse before God. Um, and talking about Messiah taking our curse on himself. That's Paul's drosh on that portion. Um, very cool thought from, from Paul on that. And, uh, and that's actually a very interesting place to go because there's a couple of different tie-ins to Messiah from that passage besides the one that Paul brings up. In addition, according to um, the Rashi commentary, that it says that it's a curse, it's a curse of God. Um, they interpret it as not a curse by God, but a curse of God. And so they say uh, it's a consequence for blasphemy is being on a tree as a, as a punishment. And uh, so if you think about that, that's fascinating because, of course, what did they accuse Yeshua of doing? They accused him of blasphemy. They were wrong. About to be God. Yeah, which is which is always blasphemy, except in the one you know out of twelve billion chance that happened to be God. The uh, so that's like the only time. The um, I see you got a couple comments here, but real quick, just one other thing about that too is that um, that the scriptures actually say that they insisted on bringing him down because the next day was Passover. But if you read from this scripture passage, they had to bring him down anyway, no matter what. because it was the coming of the end of the day. So, which if you think about it, is also kind of cool because. Um, in this particular portion, uh, when they bring him down, they they do they do it ends up being a confirmation of his death, which is part of his okay. sacrifice as that um, experience. So, which means the swoon theory goes out. The, the swoon window. theory goes out the window. Um, yeah, people who were very trained to kill people were dead certain he was dead. So, um, but anyway, so that's just an example of where this week's Torah portion has him in multiple layers, and there's there are other ones too. Yeah, I got my dad and my father. So it should be pointed out that even though uh, Messiah he was. Because he was not he was not judged or convicted by the Sanhedrin. He was judged by men other than the Sanhedrin, and he was convicted by Romans who had no authority to do it. Plus, also according to the Rashi text, uh, the hanging on a tree is not the actual matter of execution. That is supposed to be stoning, followed by it's supposed to be a display. It's supposed to be warning people: don't do what this guy did. Which See what happened to him. Which was which was the idea behind the crucifixion was to make a display of, of the persons. But 
they were, um, the Romans being a little different than the Jews, they decided to make that the execution method as well. Yes, sir. All right, so this is cool. And I think we went over this last year as well. Um, Rabbi Moshe Cordovero, known as the Rama, died. He died in 1570. And when he died, the Arizal, Rabbi Yitzhak Luria, was asked to speak at his funeral. And he used this passage to say, wait a second, there's a problem. You need to kind of look at how we're interpreting the words here because this, this man died but had not sinned. Hmm. And it parallels, I mean, Paul could have done this eulogy at the cross for the master. He says, uh, um, he, he quotes the, the thing and says, literally, this means when a man has a sin for which he is sentenced to death, and he is to death, which is right, right there in the text. He says, however, since the word kata, sin, can also mean deficiency, the Arizal rendered it, when a man is lacking any cause to be sentenced to death, then why is he put to death? Literally, this means you should hang him on the gallows. He goes on into the next verse. However, the term hang, and I'm not going to try and butcher that with those tiny little letters, can also be translated as blame. Thus, the Arizal explained, when a person devoid of sin, such as Ramach, or in our case, Yeshua, passes away, you should blame it on the tree. Not on his own sins, which are lacking, but due to the tree of knowledge. He brings it back to its original sin, which caused death to be decreed upon the world. That's very cool. That like will that. preach. That is very cool. Yeah. That's, uh, uh, that's page 158 in the, uh, uh, the Gutnick edition. Of the, uh, the inspired version. The inspired version. That's what he's saying. Yeah, there's other things from Messiah here, too. Uh, think about his detractors. They, um, they accuse him. Uh, Yeshua himself quotes them to saying, When John was among you, you said, He is not eating or drinking. Oh, he has a demon. I come among you eating and drinking. Now you say, Oh, he's a glutton and a drunkard. Which is in this passage, because it's referencing the rebellious son, which seems to be an appropriate um, accusation, I suppose. Not appropriate to Yeshua, but, you know, he's exactly the kind of thing that they would call him, right? Um, who didn't like him. The amazing thing is, if, if you're sitting and even perhaps substitute teaching for a godly man and he leaves a woman in the class who wants to argue that you can't drink wine from the scripture this gluttonous thing that the master said and right here seems to be real wine not grape juice seems to be um and uh it's interesting too that and your dad was sitting in the back the whole time staying quiet <laughs> he, he did that to me too but i appreciated it um the uh the rebellious person is stoned by the elders, which, of course, again, Yeshua has some problems with people who want to stone him, who are mistaken as to his actual actions, well, but they interpret their own way. Well, he's around uh, the men that are trying to stone, or going to stone the woman caught in adultery. Which brings me back to this week's Torah portion. How about that? Because in this week's Torah portion, we figure out why Yeshua says they can't stone the woman who's caught in adultery. Because there's one small problem of being caught in adultery. It takes, it two, takes two to tango. There are a number of things that take two, and that's one of them. So the and he, eyewitnesses, not witnesses, eyewitnesses. Right, and in fact, this week's Torah portion is quite interesting because throughout the Torah portion, you read the Rashi commentary, they specifically insert the importance of the witnesses multiple times. Happy witnesses have to have warned them not to do so, 
etc. So when the woman is the only one brought out, something is definitely not okay. We got, we got a little problem. Um, so Yeshua uh, ends up going actually not violating the Torah, which is what a lot of Christians think. He actually reinforces it. He's getting to the real heart of it, the true meaning of it, um, and ultimately Judaism falls on, on that issue um, in insisting that they cannot stone her because there's no one to see it. And in fact, he even ends with an allusion to that with the woman. When he, he, he comes to her and he says, where are your accusers? She says, there are none, which is the whole problem to begin with. And then he says, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Um, yeah, he, uh, the, uh, this week's portion also, speaking of women and, and wives and marriage and so forth, this week's portion also has Yeshua's teaching on divorce. If you go into um, chapter 24 at the very beginning, it specifically talks about when a woman is put away, it specifically references an immoral reason. Well, Yeshua goes, highlights specifically, look, this is the only biblical basis for divorce, is immorality. Any other case is not sufficient. But more than that, Yeshua actually plays off of this portion in another way. Because the phrase that begins this portion, when you go out, the when, the key in Hebrew, is also used in the divorce passage. When you uh, give your wife, your wife displeases you and you give her a certificate of divorce. The when in both places is the word key in Hebrew, which is a little bit of an unusual word for when. It's not when as in time. It's more like if or because. Um, in modern Hebrew, key is usually because, or at least what I learned. Um, even just beginning, four. beginner's level. Four. four, yeah. So what's interesting about that is there's a tie-in from the divorce passage and the very beginning. Well, what's the beginning talking about? The beginning is talking about when you're going to war and you find a woman you want to do things with, there's a, there's a rule around that. And the sages have a real problem with this passage. They're like, are we talking about like saying it's okay to get into your lusts? And his, they're saying no. The, the scripture is recognizing that men are have a proclivity towards evil, so therefore they're giving them a a means to do it quote unquote the right way, but they discourage it. So they have this thirty day waiting period and so forth. And that's exactly what Yeshua says about divorce. Yeshua says Moses said it's okay for you to have divorce, but it's not from the beginning. It was not this way. In other words, what Yeshua is saying is, he, and what did he say? He says because Moses knew that sin in your heart, the evil in your hearts. So Yeshua is actually playing off the exact same midrash or teaching about the beginning of this week's Torah portion from a different part of the Torah portion to say that the only reason why divorce is permitted is because people have sin and that in an effort to help them deal with their sin, so to speak, or, 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 or channel it in a slightly less detrimental way, we're going to allow this, but it's not ideal. And that's exactly what the sages are saying about the beginning of this week's Torah portion. The Bible is letting men in war go through this this ritual of getting a wife from a captive, but it's not ideal. And the sages even go on to say that when she does that, the rest of the passage is in order. So you start off with the, with the woman, then the next passage is she she becomes the despised woman of the two wives, and she has the firstborn son, you gotta give him your money. Then the firstborn son turns out to be a rebellious, you know, worthless fellow that you have to stone. So it just kinda like doesn't it doesn't work out so well. That's a relief. Yeah. <laughs> but the point being that like Did you skip to cross dressing on the way there? Yeah. yeah. But the point is to say that this the sages are are saying this is not ideal. It's not good. And it's exactly the same approach that Yeshua is taking with divorce. Yeah. Which I think is cool that they're in the exact same Torah portion. Yes, sir. Understanding that we're human beings and that we make mistakes, um, it's easy for us, uh, for those of us that have made mistakes that don't appear in human terms to have consequences, hmm. to point 
our fingers at others that have made mistakes, that have ongoing societal consequences, the example being divorce or whatever else. And in Yeshua's teaching, and also in this teaching, it's, as you say, it, to me it's not so much God saying, well, you're evil, so you go ahead, whatever. It's more, of a, it's more of a provision within his perfect law. It's more of a provision for understanding that we are human beings. Right. Not to excuse sin, but to allow people, uh, in spite of circumstances and bad decisions, to still have an opportunity to repent and then also then to continue to fulfill the other uh, laws that God has given. Right, and if you and, and otherwise I, we're put out of the congregation, we have no we have no opportunity to done. participate, even though death. we've repented. Right, he's giving us he's giving an opportunity not only for repentance but also to um, God is acknowledging that there are certain things that humans struggle with, and he's his his desire is to um, put in enough roadblocks to hopefully prevent us from going on a path that he knows is not wise, but at the same time to stop them from doing things definitively wrong. And as parents, I think we have that. You see your kids doing something you know is not necessarily a sin, but it's a bad idea. You might put up, let's let's think about that tomorrow. How about, let's sleep on that one. Let's uh, let's not make that decision right now. You're emotional, whatever it might be. And it's like, the goal is not to say, no, you can't do that, because sometimes you have to let kids make their own decisions and learn from them. But the intent is, of course, to say, let's try to slow down and be careful. And that's kind of what I think God is doing here. Um, did you have more to say there, Dad? I think also it's interesting too I've got you also one thing here Rabbi Mike on this week's portion he was talking about uh, he, he teaches um, at a Bible school in Israel and he has students so I, I get the impression are somewhat secular uh, at least some of them are so he's got one woman who's like really challenging over this like this is awful that this is in the Bible and he he pulls her because it's so like contrary to our current norms and values or whatever and he says you know what's the true triumph of the Bible is that you think this is awful because when the Bible was written, this was normal, not this. This they was trying to stop what was normal. Gang raping women in war was normal. Selling them into slavery was normal. That's the humanity that we were in. The Bible was trying to stop that. The fact that 2,000 years later, Western society so influenced by the Bible says this is, even the provision is grotesque. Rabbi Mike was like, that is the triumph of the scriptures because that was what they were trying to do all along. It was a culture change to get away from being like animals to start becoming more like God. Which hasn't changed in some parts of the world. Right, absolutely. No, if you go to, if you go to Syria today, ISIS and, uh, and, the, uh, and the, the Syrian government and their, 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 uh, uh, mili their military, they do exactly the same thing. They use um, rape as a, as a weapon. So the point to say is that like, this is not just like, oh, that's way back then. This is today. The scripture is still very relevant Absolutely. today. I got uh, agree and then my mom. Just to, to comment on the, the whole like thing about the heat of the moment, I thought it was brilliant and similar to the Rabbi Mike and Fleischer show. They were kind of talking about like being having an out in the midst of this passion, right? Because when you're in war, you're already like just on level ten with your adrenaline running and everything. And just to say to somebody, "Don't do that," is not going to work at all. But to say someone you have some things to do. Like, that is the brilliance of this provision, is right. that, uh, and to your point, that the whole purpose of it was for them to cool down and to realize after the 30 days that this wasn't the not right thing at all. Right. But just the idea of not just saying no, but actually presenting 
an option of, of something for someone to do, because that's kind of what's happening right now. They're, they're actively doing something. So it's just brilliant to actually present like a, here's a step-by-step of how this needs to go. And so now, you know, in the heat of the moment, they can still participate in some action or setting person aside and making sure that all these things are in place. And then by 30 days, they're, they're pretty much not going to participate at all. Right. So, and That's the goal. It's really cool. How it Absolutely. Works. And God knows human, especially male nature so well. I think one of the worst things you can do to a man is tell him, no, you can't do something, um, but not give him any, any like path forward on what to instead. And there needs to be like an alternative of some sort. So like, if you can't do this, do this differently. And um, I can't help but think of my father-in-law um, with my, one of my brothers-in-law, um, who at the time was not ready to be a son-in-law. Um, and uh, my father-in-law didn't just tell him no. He gave him a checklist. Well, okay, no now. But if you do this, this, and this, and we see some progress here, then let's talk. Like, there's the, you, we, can, we can get to a place. Here's how you do it. And I, I really respect that because I think that's exactly what this scripture passage is kind of doing. It's like, do you want to do this? Well, there is a way to do it. But ideally, in this case, I'm like, uh, the brilliant decision of, of Mary and Christine. In this case, God's ultimately hoping that they won't do it because it's not such a good idea. But the point is that like giving a man something to do instead is really important because, um, to Greg's point, you're talking about passions and energies and, and emotions that are very difficult to control. Um, and, 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 and that's something that God's trying to corral. In fact, we get kind of another reference to some of that later, but um, I think my mom had a comment. Well, Judith, I hear your mom, but he's taking an ethics class, an uh, intro to ethics philosophy class. It's given us a lot of opportunity to discuss that. In other words, it's unethical. <laughs> and he and I were talking on Friday about the examples that they used in class. And that people's ideas of right and wrong, and, well, they're a different culture, they're different that, you know, those expectations are not on them. Just saying that without God, without scripture, none of us would have these concepts. None of us would have a right and wrong. It would be whether it was right in your own heart and mind. And so what we look at is typically Western society and, you know, from Judaism, it says, no, that's unacceptable behavior, which people think it's just the American idea sometimes. It's because God has put in our hearts. And he's given us, Judah came home from class and said, I'm so glad there's a Bible. And I and I know what to believe and what to read. Because it, it gives us that foundation that we need so that we don't just act. And I think God puts it innately in our hearts to, to follow us, but at least we have it written down so that we have the guidelines. Right, and I think it's ultimately because, um, to what we about earlier, Without that, when you're in the heat of the moment and you want something or want to do something, you don't. You always find justification. I mean, some people just act. That's true. But it's, I think a lot of people who are, especially in this room, probably more conscientious types, very rarely do you think you do something and not know it's wrong. It's wrong. If you do it, you probably find a justification. Well, it's not wrong because I, you know, this and that and the other and. Um, and whatever it might be, and usually justifications are pathetic, but the point is that the scriptures are there to stand up against that, to say, well, it doesn't matter if you think A, B, and C, because God said this is wrong, and that's the end of the, and the, end of the story. Yes, sir? The, uh, earlier in, in the same Gutnik, um, the recommendation is if you feel drawn to sin and that temptation that so often takes you, 
delay. Just delay. Just waste time. Try and just do something else for a little bit, just to delay, so that the temptation passes and the passions and the emotions and all the things that so often will cause problems for us are, are gone. My dad, the same thing. my dad used to say when I was a little boy, I would, I would um, get ready for bed or something and I would get scared or I'd have start having all these questions that I wanted to resolve. My dad would be like, don't, this is not the time to do that. Now, it's dark, you're going to be emotional, go to sleep, talk about it in the morning. And of course, in the morning it was all gone, you know. And that my dad knew that, because that's exactly what we're talking about. And actually, that's really what the scripture's getting at here. And it's interesting, when you think about, um, you get to that latter portion where it starts talking about what happens when people commit immorality outside of marriage. There's different cast classes of it. Um, one of the categories I think is important, and it talks about when the woman is in the city, and the man is in the city, and says so she does not cry out. And in the, in the Rashi commentary, it notes that when she, because she went out, and they, they kind of play off of a little bit, I think, of, of the story of Dina. If you go back to that one, yeah. she went out. And the point being that, like, she's kind of in a place she shouldn't be. Right. So the, the sages are playing off of the scripture, because the scripture, quite frankly, plays even blame on the man and the woman, which is kind of crazy and feels kind of crazy, but um, a little bit. But I think the point that the scripture is trying to say is that um, it does take two to tango. And while men sometimes are animals, and they are, uh, what they, they can be, but the um, sometimes women have also have a responsibility in that relationship, and the way that you dress, the way that you act, the way that you talk, is important. And it's something that, as like at, for those of us who have daughters, it's important to raise our daughters to recognize that their actions have consequences. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that by any means that a woman is 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 responsible when she's taken advantage of. I'll be careful about that. Always, but. Always is always responsible. But that she's not necessarily asking for that, but she is playing with fire. Let's just put it that way. She's she's touching on a in a realm that maybe she thinks is fun or maybe she thinks is harmless or maybe she thinks she wants to get some of that attention but not all of it and it's like this this passage this earlier passage talking about war is acknowledging that um, especially men who are not particularly moral when those hormones start moving, they tend to make very poor decisions. And they're very difficult to control. And that's not to say that's an excuse. Absolutely not. The man is stoned in this in this portion. Um, but he, um, at the same time, it's to acknowledge that like you have to kind of keep that in mind. Yes, Morgan? I think we're surprised to see that there's blame on both sides because our current culture has it uh, you know, 100% to zero. It's, right. Right. You were raped. If you had a little thought, I don't think I want that's it. That's all it takes. 
Well, and now it's even getting beyond yeah, that exactly. to where. Even after. Yeah, I was gonna say now the new the new one is yeah, is people really bad about this. looking back on it, going, I don't remember if if I felt like it was okay or not. Now it's that's great, and it's like and to say and I, the irony in this is is not I'm not defending the man here. The irony here is there is a very simple solution for this. Absolutely. Men need don't to be moral. Don't have sex. Men need to don't make, have sex make, outside marriage. Well, and and men should keep themselves out of the out of positions where that would be a temptation. That's one of the things about this warfare passage. God's used. desire is to put them or to be used. God's desire is to get them out of the circumstance that's so spiritually dangerous. The blood is pumping. Their adrenaline is running. They see a woman who possibly is dressed nicely because she's hoping she doesn't get killed, so she can have maybe her chance to get out. You know, whatever, and the man gives in, and God said, "Whoa! If we step out of that consequence, if we're in a different, uh, a different location, and it's been 30 days, imagine her ball. Yeah, yeah. It's like all of a sudden, <laughs> not feeling it. So, so my, my point is to say that, that the same thing is true for us as men. Don't put yourself in that place. Women, be careful not to put, not to put men in that place by by uh, involuntarily. But for men, you you have places you should not be." Like maybe staying late in the office alone with a woman but might not Pence be the best role. idea. Right. You know, Mike Pence has got in trouble for that because he wouldn't go in his closed door office alone. That's Smart a really man. good idea, especially today. We have uh, our company rule is if you're caught alone with a woman for any reason at all while you're on duty with us, it's your last day. You cannot be alone with a woman. And sometimes we're going into people's houses to help them, you know, the owner and so forth. And uh, we, we have two or three new employees this year. And that was a shocker to them. Because they coordinate to meet the person there and work on their network and help out and all of that. You know, whip around in my chair and say, who's going to be there? She will be. Well, that's great. She needs to be there. Who else is going to be there? I don't think anybody else is going to be there. Call her back. You can't do that. And they're shocked. Back again to the, the whole concept uh, that you're talking about. It's, it's not just don't be alone with a woman, as, as Mr. Pence lives by it, and many of us do as well. It needs, to be, it needs to be brought back to where it should have been from the beginning and where it was in the beginning. If you are not married, you have no reason to be doing anything like this. There isn't going to be any of this, I'm bubbling over and can't help myself and all, that should never, ever happen if you are committed to the fact that you're going to wait and have that type of adventure privately with your wife. Right. If you've committed to that, you're already head and shoulders beyond where most people, where most men are today. Well, and quite frankly, you've, you've provided the only solution to today's culture. That's I right. mean, that's when I remember when that's the right. SARS started breaking out with all the, um, the Me Too movement. Um, there was um, despair, confusion on the part of men. Like, what am I supposed to do? Like, what are the rules? I don't even know what the rules are anymore. All of a sudden, like... You know, some things are okay, some things aren't, some things are okay only if the woman thinks they're okay, but then if she doesn't tell me, it still might be bad as long as she thinks it's a problem later, and, you know, all this different, different stuff, and, uh... Forget about And, and, and even, even to the point now where you have accusations that aren't, didn't even happen, but you happen to be the only person who was there, and her, and now you're toast. 
And, or, uh, or it could have been somebody else there uh, with Justice Kavanaugh. Right, now you're both toast. Now, boy. So the point is to say that, like, the, um, it left men without many answers. Now, there is actually a very obvious answer, and that is if you live an upstanding in life of integrity where you're consistent, and you don't put yourself in places that are, that are risky or dangerous. And you don't want to do that. You don't that want to, and you treat women with respect, and, you, and you, the way you talk with them, the way you interact with them is appropriate, then you keep yourself literally above reproach. And I think that's and that's the uh, that's the lesson I think, uh, particularly from this week's core portion. Yes, sir. All exactly correct, but remember, the most innocent man in the history of man was wrongly accused. So that's true. We should do our best to be blameless, but when we are accused, we should understand that it's coming from the end. Yeah. Right. Well, yes, yes. As as you know, we were talking about earlier, Yeshua being accused by people is always false. So in this case. Um, and Yeshua, though, ultimately becomes the embodiment of what Peter is talking about, right? So that even your accusers are going, yeah, but this is, I mean... This is so out of count. I mean, this really, is really, this guy? Come on. Yeah, I and mean, that actually, um, and you, and every now and again, you do kind of get that sense. And that's actually kind of true of Joseph. So Joseph ends up in a place that's not totally appropriate. He is alone with Potiphar's wife, which is why she's able to accuse him. But he was such a man of integrity and such a moral man that her husband doesn't really believe her. He kind of has to save face because he can't make it look like he doesn't believe her. But the fact that he doesn't have him executed tells us he doesn't really believe her. I think Mrs. Potiphar is in some deep doo-doo here. So, he, his, his, um, so Joseph generically lived such an upstanding life that even when he was falsely accused and even when the system worked against him, they ultimately, uh, they ultimately knew in their hearts he was which actually just happened with Justice Kavanaugh, as 83 ethics violations were completely dismissed against him. I think that represents the tie as well, right? Uh, Western Union with a strong national policy. Right, for that's my on, sake. That's on his account, though. Mm -hmm. so. But even, even still, though, to your point, I think that sometimes people who do live upstanding, godly yeah, lives are targeted. the ones who get targeted, yes. Sure. Can we, can we move on? No, I want to spend the whole next hour talking about this topic. Yes, we can move on to something else. So, so Deuteronomy 22 is a favorite of mine when I'm talking to someone who thinks that the Torah is no longer applicable or has no place in our lives or would have no part in the training of my children. The finders, not so keepers passage? That's it. So Deuteronomy 22 talks about the wallet. I, I use the wallet analogy, Joshua knows where I'm going. I use it, the wallet analogy with all manner of men, dads. And I'll say, aren't you, are you teaching your son that if he finds somebody's wallet, unlike a New Yorker, he's actually going to open it up and try and find out who the owner is to return it and all of its contents back to the owner. In New York, you don't do that. You pick it up, you take the money out, you throw it in the nearest trash bin, and you move on. It was a gift from God. That's the New York thing. There it is, right? So, do, so you know, most dads, most dads will say, "Well, sure, I'm teaching him to do the right thing there." Well, how do you know it's the right thing? Well, it's just the moral thing to do. Exactly. But how do you know it's the moral thing to do? They don't have an answer because their life lives around the apostolic scriptures and only the apostolic scriptures. So they got to grab something out of whole cloth to try and justify what they know to be true. But Deuteronomy 22 is, is exactly that teaching. So that I can say to this man, 
I'm teaching my son, taught my son, exactly the same thing you're teaching, but you have no reason that you can come up with other than it's the right thing to do. Here it is in black and white. If your fellow loses anything, it's your responsibility to care for it and get it back to it. Good stuff. Very good stuff. This yes, is sir. also a really good passage for like a plug for, even if you're not really into the Talbot, Talmudic ethics around this are really helpful because there are definitely some areas where this gets really tricky. You find a penny in the parking lot. Now what do you do? Right. So unidentifiable objects, sure. things like money. Everybody yeah. has You're on money. Way into the city. I, I sign all my bills. I sign all my, my currency. Yeah. You sign all your currency. Just to make sure. Okay. With his address. <laughs> <laughs> That's good to know. Because the wallet is actually the easiest. The wallet is easy. It's got the idea. Right. But then, like, the other day, actually, I was thinking about this as I had passed by a stray dog with a collar. Ah. You would, I mean, that is actually very close to the sheep and the donkey yeah. here, yeah. right? And so, like, what what are we supposed to do then? Because there's there's lots of stray dogs all over the place. Some have collars, some don't. So, from a Talmudic perspective, if there's an identifiable nature about the item, that's when this is obligatory. Yeah, and an obligation not, kicks in. Then, yeah, you're pretty much you can just do whatever you want with it. If, if there's no possible way of finding the owner. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. What do you guys think of that? That makes sense. Absolutely. Actually, the the the, the, the midrash here, um, it, or the commentary, the not midrash, excuse me, the, the Talmudic ethics discussion on this, I think is very good because they they're trying to say like this is setting a standard of behavior, but th it's not meant to be unbearable. I mean, you go and you out go find that dog with that collar and you can't, but that, or it doesn't have an ID on it, and you don't know who it belongs to. Well, now you want a dog, but you got to keep it until somebody somebody comes knocking your door looking for it. I mean. That, it's kind of, it doesn't really make a whole lot of logical sense. And so God's not intending us, this is not one of those super rational commands where God's just That's trying to right. make us be like, right. well, just because I told you so. Yet the, 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 uh, the interpretation of it is actually extremely logical. If you, get, if you find an animal, you're responsible to take care of it. But you have to feed it, and at some point, the animal may be worth less than the food you paid for to feed it while the owner came looking for it. You can sell the animal then, and then split money with the person when they come back and be like, look, these are my expenses for keeping it. You never found it, so it's that's not really on me. So that's okay. And they talk about as well, like, well, if you're, you know, the king and you happen to see someone's dog with a collar on it, you're not meant to bow down and scoop that animal up because that's not what you do. But if it was your dog and you happen to find it and you would bow down and pick up the animal, well, then you are responsible for treating your neighbor the same way you would want to be treated. So there is this... Um, there are these little layers of rules to this that I think are very helpful because, yeah, to your point, I walk around uptown. Every now and again, you find a baseball cap or, you know, someone's dirty polo and you're thinking, what happened here? But um, <laughs> I don't know what to do with it. It's like, well, there's no ID. Was it a Second Amendment uh, hat? Because it was. Uh, might have been yours. Yeah. Well, one time I found a restaurant hat, so I walked over to the restaurant. I said, I think this belongs to one of your employees. But, you know, other times you're like, I have no clue. There'd be no way to figure it out. So I think that's where like some of this Talmudic stuff is meant to make it somewhat practical within the because what ultimately you're trying to do, we're trying to make people responsible for each other. Amen. It's not meant to turn us all into pack rats of other people's garbage that we threw away that we didn't realize was trash. Well, you know, the intent is that I take care of someone else's property um, to the same level or better than I take care of my own. Yes, sir. Must there be any confusion over whether you find cash? It's not identified. Should, if you decide to keep it, you should not spend it. Because some might come and identify 
If you find treasure buried in your backyard, that's a completely different matter. But if you find it's cash, your backyard now. Yeah. That's right, it's your backyard. But if you find cash, you're not free. It's like, oh, I can't know. I don't know whose it was. You know, you, you really should not spend it. Yeah, well, you should reserve it. You have to the, reserve the best thing would be, as Joshua yeah. did, where they didn't, couldn't identify it, give it to somebody else. Make it their responsibility. Yeah. <laughs> because if someone like, comes to you and asks you for the money and you spend it, yeah. now you're... To, to Rick's point, there's been many times where even the trashy public newspapers will print a story about some woman or some guy who lost a major wad of cash and some kid found it. And he held on to it. Right. And then there was some kind of report that this woman had lost, and he shows up with it. That's that's godly. That, that's the, the, what we the need notion. The, the point here is you're not looking for something for nothing. And and really, in all of this, it should never be. You know, it's like I said. You know, God gave it to me. <laughs> yeah. You know, with the exception of, of uh, Joseph, who loved the Shabbat and found the gem in the in the mouth of the trout. Essentially, if you find something, it's not yours. <laughs> well, there. I think in that case, you think about the fish. Essentially, kind of is his. Whatever's inside it. That's is right. His. Yeah. yeah. Which well, is just. If you find treasure buried in your backyard, obviously ancient, then yes, it's yours. Well, I think the righteous man should assume that if he finds something of value, it. it's a great test of, of his master, so that he can demonstrate to himself that he's going to do what's right. She raised her hand first, so she gets to go first. I'm sorry, have you two met? You've been, you've been, you've been, you've been, you've been you know, vocalizing, but you got to raise your hand. That's the rule. I've got to, I'm just teasing you, Greg. Christine asked me on the way out the door before, what is the simplest explanation uh, for the fact that um, this part of the portion with the lost wallet is something that we all uh, understand and practice because it's in the Torah? But Well, there are lots of rules very specific to the Levite marriage. Mm -hmm. Say what? Well, I mean, there's not a whole lot of opportunity for it. I'm not taking the second one. Right. Good, right. But, <laughs> but, but you wouldn't. That was good. If, but you weren't expecting, like, if Joshua were to have passed away before we were able to have children, that Judah would marry me, right? Well, Judah's right here, so I'm not going to embarrass him. <laughs> <laughs> but you wouldn't have expected that, right? I wouldn't have expected you to think about that, although I was thinking about it. I'm with you Rick. Made it too personal, honestly. I'm you with. Made it personal and said, "Absolutely." <laughs> I'm, I'm with Rick. But that's what makes it hard. I wouldn't. I wouldn't just toss this this room <laughs> under the bus at yeah. all. No. But I would. I, I think where Rick is coming from, I would come from too. I would. I would definitely stop and and look to the scripture is and go, "Wait a second. Is this really something that should be looked?" And to be fair, there are, and partly it's an effort, I think, to kind of make it less of a prevalent in today's society, so I don't know if it's entirely all good, but the Talmudic rules and guidelines and, and stuff around this, I mean, if you read the Rashi commentary even, it's like, really, it's a lot more complicated than it appears. So there are certain, like, factors and circumstances that have to be triggered first in order for, it's not just, well, she he died and they don't have any kids, so next brother in line pops does in he, there. And does, he, and does he even have a way of, pers uh, of uh, supporting her or whatever else? 
because this is the case of Boaz. Boaz was like, well, duh, this is perfect. You know, and we have Messiah uh, as a as a descendant because of right. the right there. Absolutely. But Boaz wasn't next. Right. 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 Exactly. So but the guy had to say, Colony Almoni may I, not have had had the money to do it. Right. Or he's got a gig going that he doesn't want to blow. That's you know. True. And you know, I think about it with Mary, my my youngest daughter has no children, and if her husband should die, without her having children, well, I'm done. I don't have to mess with that because my son's already married. What about your son? That would not be affected there. No, it would be, be his brother. Yeah. Yeah. She would have Okay. <laughs> 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 I think this is a bogus thing that you mean. No, I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. Well, that was part that's, of the that's baking, like. So I don't think that is applicable to a Gentile and someone like that. I don't think that would matter. Well, at all to someone so that might that is one thing to keep in mind is that part of it has to do with inheritance in terms of owning the land. That is a big part of that, which is where we hold have the, the daughters of the left side at first. It doesn't say. But it's not well. It, it's alluded to in the saying that like his name will not be blotted out. So that's the 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 sages say that refers to his inheritance, his 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 property. Um, and the name of the father, which goes back to the daughters' left out story from the last uh, book of the Bible, where their whole thing was, why should our father's name be blotted out? We should get property too. And then they say, well, yes, you can, but then you have married people who are inside the tribe, so it doesn't leave the tribe and so forth. And it only had to happen one time. And now we got the guys in the tribes who are back to guys again. Right, so we're good. So you, yeah. So the, the idea being that uh, they had men children and that, that, that fixed that problem. It's not a guarantee, apparently. But <laughs> I, I think I, I, I am with. Some of us I, have I guys, some of us have girls. I, get it. I agree yeah. that I think that if there was a scenario that came out that played into this, I would not dismiss it. Amen. But I also think that it would be a mistake for um, messianics who've been reading this once a year in English to think that, oh, slam dunk. Well, obviously, brother number two, step up. You got to go do it. Otherwise, she's taking off your shoe. You know, like that's not necessarily <laughs> the way that it Where works. Where are the elders of that city anyway? So I'm just saying, like, I would be hesitant to say, like, it's it's obvious what the answer is, but I also would not dismiss it. That's a great way. That's always a good answer. Well, but it, it's also a very serious thing. If you think about it, it's a big deal. Like, you can't, I, and I wouldn't treat it lightly. And that's right. another important thing. It's, um, the, uh, the 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 avenue of escape, so to speak, the the exception, the Plony Almoni character, is there on purpose. I think God is acknowledging that some people either can't or won't, <clears throat> and it's it's so serious He doesn't want to trap them there, even though it may be a mitzvah. Um, there's a cool little passage here. Just think about Hebrew words. If you've read that, if you read this passage in your English Bible, you may not have seen this. If you read this passage in your Humash, you may have noticed. So it says, so shall be done to the man who will not fill up the house of his brother. Does that sound familiar? It is actually the same Hebrew word from Esther, where Mordecai is being led down the street. So shall be done to the man who the king wants to honor. There's a cool little, like, like kind of an interesting little, like, interpretation there, I think. And that is the fact that we don't really understand the relationship between Mordecai and Esther. She's called his uncle. But she's kind. Of, 
Is she, yeah, she's called his niece. I'm sorry, she's called his niece. He's, uncle. he's the same thing. Right there, right? Yeah, he's called her uncle, and they um, and there's this, this little, there's little, uh, but there's also this sort of father-daughter relationship there. So I think it's entirely possible that maybe Leverett marriage, but he took responsibility for her in the same way that Leverett marriage was intended to be. That you take care of your siblings' families. So I, I, it kind of makes me think that that's an extension of this passage, which you think about is really cool, because what's the correlation there? It's like, well, if you choose not to take care of your family, you get dishonored. But if you choose to take care of your family, this is the way the king honors those who please him. Nice. I like it. Okay. I like that, uh, because the Torah does put family. Yeah. Shows the importance Absolutely. Some relative. Them in. As far back as you have to go, this is, this is family, so it seems like that's I, I can tell you that just the generation before me, Same. that's how it was. Mm -hmm. you know, it, we're just all spread out now like never before. Right. Most of my relatives were within 20 miles of each other. All of them. All of them. You know, well, now. Right? So. Even, even though mine were far away, I would live in Mexico. Mm -hmm. You had a comment, sir. It was just actually going back to the cash to Mr. Spellock's point. I remember the Talmud of the Ethics was talking about how, depending on the context and the amount of cash, mm. determined exactly what you were saying. Like where I remember, uh, like I remember finding some a couple fives or something like that at the beach. You know, in Myrtle Beach, and it's like that's crazy. But then there's a time that I actually found a lot of cash in the DEC, the building uptown, and there's a security desk right there. Of course, easy. someone's gonna ask, easy. right? Like, so you just give it to them. And so, yeah, I think there's like, I, I, uh, that was my only comment before, just around that. But then I was, I had a comment about the mother bird. Were we gonna? Yeah, go there, go there. I just, I just, if I could jump in real quick yeah, on your comment and just say, if you were to pick up the money that you just mentioned with the security desk right there. And you were on camera picking exactly. it up, and then you stuff it in your pocket exactly. and get on the shuttle to go home. <laughs> what a loser! <laughs> right? right? Yeah. Even if you weren't on camera, we're God's so that's right. right. What a loser! <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just about finding lost things. We were at the beach in July. This is actually an interesting story. We were out on these sand dunes, and it was really windy and everything. And um, and then we went home. And it's this person I never met, and it's and the message says, um, we found your temporary driver's license buried in the sand on at Kill Devil Hills. I um, hope they wouldn't find it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, this is kind of weird, but um, you know, are you staying nearby? Because we can get it back to you. I was like, oh, that's so nice, but we're actually back in Charlotte now. Um, and uh, they said, well, do you want us to mail it? And I was just like, no, don't worry about it, because the real one will be here in a day. You know? um, and I drive and without then, a license on my And the people were so nice. They were like, oh, yeah, we totally understand. And they actually sent me a picture of it, like, shredded. You know? Oh, look at that. Yeah. It was very nice. Like, obviously, that's how we would, right. you know, 
Absolutely. No, that's a really good point. Exactly. In past generations, it's not a place you send kids that you know right. don't have enough money 
Not only that, but old dads mm -hmm. didn't get sent to some kind of home. Right. Yeah, yes. kind of get get that in your head there. You know, it's a it's a thing. You know, oh really, yeah, my dad is upstairs. Really yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and they make television shows out of it. You know, and it, it becomes yeah. fun. Yeah, it's fun. Eventually, it's fun. yeah, that's good. Fun. So uh, save up your money for that uh, mother-in-law, father-in-law suite. Um, I got my mom's back. It's past now. Okay. Um, but Mother Bird, talk about Mother Bird. I want to talk about Mother Bird. This is the, well, this is, this is the, not Mother Goose. This, this is the Mother Bird. The this lowest, is the so that, that is the first place the that we go. Is we, we talked about like so many things in here related to Yeshua. Yeshua, where does he get in the language that there's least of the commandments, yeah. right? Like clearly there is a tradition around. And there he's, are some and he's that asked, are the least. And he's asked what the greatest is. Exactly. Specifically asked what the greatest are and talks about the least. And here we have it. You're absolutely right. And just to dub in there, that's cool is that the Rashi commentary on this passage says, it says the end of the passage, you will live long on the land. The Rashi commentary goes on to be like, if it basically you did something that, that was like easy, I mean, come on. Like, and, there's no, even, and there's no financial. There's no consequence to you. You just shoot the bird away. I mean, like, what big deal is that? It's like, how much more so will God reward you for something bigger deal? Well, it's almost exactly what Yeshua talks about. Yeshua says, if you don't keep and teach people to break the least of these commandments, you'll be least of the kingdom of heaven. But if you teach and keep the least of these commandments, then you'll be great in the kingdom of heaven. So Yeshua is actually playing off of the exact same concept of like there's reward, there's significant reward for keeping the smallest of the commandments. Russians, yeah. Yeah, 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 but I'm saying yes. They're yes. on the same page. Yes. Right, right. So this was just, I think this was kind of cool that Rabbi Corbin had an interesting video. About oh yeah, this. he's got a really cool teaching he on this. He's talking about how like, I, and I hadn't really thought about this before, you know, he's very dramatic, and so he talks about, like, here, I'll pause the video right now. Why don't you go out and try to catch a mother bird right now? Go ahead. <laughs> you know, and he's like, you, you would never be able to catch a bird. God gave them wings, and they are very hard to catch. You cannot <laughs> catch them, especially with your bare hands. The only time will be if she is protecting her young. That's right. It's the moment that she is most vulnerable. And so he, of course, plays off the fact that this is one of two commandments that comes with a promise of long life on the land. The other one is honoring your father and mother. And so he relates it back to the fact that it's the same thing. Your mom will love you unconditionally. She's built into her nature to protect you. You don't take advantage of that. That doesn't mean that you are overly rebellious because you know you can always come back home or you know that you are taking advantage somehow of the vulnerability of your parents' love in that case, which I thought was a really interesting teaching to come out of. But then, I, this was neat in the Gutnik Kumash, I love those commentaries that talk about the juxtaposition of certain things because sometimes you think that things are just jumping around in the Torah and you're not really sure why they're back to back. In this particular case, the Gutnik Kumash talks about, all right, so wait, why is the guardrails mentioned, this mitzvah around the guardrails mentioned in juxtaposition with the mother bird? And so going back to the reward for if you keep the least of the commandments, it says, Rashi says, if you have fulfilled the mitzvah of sending away the mother bird, you'll eventually build a new house and have to fulfill the mitzvah of putting up a guardrail. And because that mitzvah leads to other mitzvahs, then you'll probably possess a vineyard. In which case, there's a mixture that it talks about the mixtures of seeds in your vineyards. And then, most likely, you will have fine clothes, and you shouldn't mix you know, your fine clothes. Sure. There's, a, there's like the wool and linen mixture. 
And so that's why these are juxtaposed, to show the progression of blessing that comes from keeping so one of the least of these commands. Absolutely. So it's like instead of if you give a mouse a cookie, if a Jew keeps a mitzvah, you know, yeah. then you'll have another mitzvah to do. Yes. And it all goes back to you protecting me. Right. No, I love that one. I was going to mention that one because that was so great in the Rashi commentary because I think it's exactly this idea of one mitzvah leads to another mitzvah, one sin leads to another sin. That's exactly what you get in this portion because this is the example of the one mitzvah leads to another mitzvah. There are other examples though in this portion that talk about like, well, if you if you uh, if the if the man marries the woman he's not supposed to, well then he will despise her. Like that's the next step because you have children. And then you know, and there's one where it's like the man who, and then also the one about the man who marries the woman who's divorced. They actually tell that guy, that's not a hero in the story. It's so interesting how, like, you read the text, it's not as obvious, but the sages don't like him at all, which is kind of interesting because Yeshua's reference about adultery and marrying a woman who, who's divorced is like adultery um, it shows that he's not really fond of, of that either. Anyway, so this particular portion, they go into it, and they like, he's like, well, if he marries this woman, he's not supposed to marry because she's, uh, anyway, then he'll end up, she's not a good person, basically boils down to The reason why she got divorced so, is because she's So now she's immoral. two certificates of so he's going to end up despising her. And if he doesn't despise her and get rid of her, he's going to die before she does. <laughs> because the next line says, or if he dies, you know, that happens too. So you know, the point being that, like, you're right, the consequences stack. And I think that's, that's something that is very difficult for us as society today to think about. And we make these mistakes all the time. I mean, think about debt, right? So you get stuck in credit card debt when you're 18 because you don't really think about it, whatever. Well, now, five years later, you know, you might have difficulty getting a house. Or, you know, a little while later after that, now you have other things you can't do or can do or whatever. You've got uh, people hunting you down, calling you, wanting their money back and so forth. And it's like, it's like these things stack one after the other. And oftentimes we're not aware of all the consequences that are out there, good or bad. Right, and that's why the concept of teshuva is to turn around and go the other way. Right. Because if you don't, you keep going that way, and they keep stacking on top of each other. One sin leads to another sin. Just first one mitzvah leads to another mitzvah. First law, uh, law of holes. If you find yourself in one, stop digging. <laughs> Sing as a high in the yeah. I had another thing that I heard. We, we Go for remember. it. Sure. So there, Rabbi Would you Kaplan, say shovels? Yeah. Rabbi Kaplan had this really interesting teaching about the shovel. Right, so he's saying the the, uh, the passage oh, in the, about the the camp. Uh, I think it's twenty three here that talks about when you are at war and you're encamped against your enemies and all that. You need to not only be armed and protect the camp and whatnot, but you should have a shovel with you as well. And when you go outside of the camp to do your thing, you need to cover it up and everything. And he's like. What on earth is the purpose of this being in the scripture? Right? Well, what? I, I can tell you just jumping in real quick. Exactly. The United States Army actually built its latrine policies right out of this. That's what I remember you talking about that, and I thought that was really cool. But it, this was really neat. Obviously, it talks about how you that it's um, the Lord your God is walking in the midst of you. He's encamped with you, which is really cool. He was also pointing out that like this is. The, how God is reminding even like a soldier of the sanctity of life. Because in that moment, you know, you're kind of, you've got a license to kill here. You, you are protecting your camp, you are fighting against your enemies, and it's very easy to be very animalistic in that 
in that context. Like there are no rules. Like there are no rules. And this is just like one of those little reminders to be like, you're not anything like an animal. You are you are holy and set apart. And so even like a small mitzvah, like make sure you carry a shovel with you because when you do this, you gotta, you gotta cover it up. Like it is that, it's there to remind you that you are his children and you are set apart from the animals and are special and holy and called out. Absolutely. And, and, and Yishai Fleischer and Rabbi Mike were talking about that very point on this passage to say that um, this there are rules in warfare. And think about it, like it's, <laughs> Yishai Fleischer pointed out, ironically enough, the rule is not to be nice to the bad guys, but there are rules in warfare. Um, but the Bible actually creates the whole concept of just war theory. There's certain times you can go to war, certain times you can't. You have to offer terms of peace first. You have to there's issues Watch about those fruit aggression. Trees. Yeah, don't chop down the fruit trees. Don't you know bury the excrement. There's like there's all this different type of these different layers. So oh yeah, certain people shouldn't be fighting, right? All these different rules and guidelines. And if you think about it today, what's the biggest problem is that militaries don't really know what to do because the the war is vague. Well, the war is, is got. We don't we don't finish the last rule, and that is if you do it and you have to do it, you do finish. It. You, you finish do it. it, right? Um, yeah, the, <laughs> right. But the, the point being is that in, in this passage begins with when you go to war. And it talks about the man of the woman. Because what God acknowledges is that war is awful. And to your point, Gregory, it creates this, 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 this facade that there are no rules. Because it's literally kill or be killed. So it is absolutely extreme in every regard. So there are actually lots of rules you can break in war. Probably the most fundamental one is that you can kill people in war. That is actually okay as long as it's the right people. Um, the point being that, that all these other rules, though, I think to your point, Gregory, is is it keeps there, there's a structure that we work in, and we don't, I mean, if you, if you think about the times where people have committed horrific, horrific war crimes in history, it's because the, the most simplest explanation is they strayed out of war. Like, they were no longer conducting war. They were doing something else. They used war as an excuse to go massacre the village next door or to literally set fire the entire two-mile swath all the way from Alabama to uh, Virginia. The point being that... Sherman. That's yeah. a reference to Sherman. The point being that... It was the two-mile thing that was going uh, The point being that you... Um, the point being that you there are rules to keep and God has a higher standard. Yishai Flesh has a really cool reference on this one. He says, for the Lord your God walks in the camp. The only time that Hebrew phrase is used is in the Garden of Eden. Which is a really cool tie-in to be like, here you are in the military, right? And it's it can be holy. Like God's army is different. Rather than being the extreme, like to your point, the, the place where we're most animal like, it can be it can kind of tie us back to the garden. I think it's pretty cool. Yes, sir. The uh, what are called the Essenes today, but the community that we lived at Qumran is an example of this, where that was actually their their symbol was the shovel. Because they saw that as a as a mark of purity, right? But again, it's about culture shift. I think it's what we we're talking about earlier. If you respect the territory, the land, your fellow man, God enough to do something relatively simple as burying stuff, right? Then that starts to change how you act in general. Are you going to be the type to be reckless with other people's property or, or violent unnecessarily if you've already tried to be careful? No. You're going to, you're going to probably start to have that shift. 
Um, another thing from Yeshua's passage that we talked talk about finding Yeshua in the passage, loaded in this one with him, he uh, he references. Um, there's a passage, there's a verse here that talks about making a vow. Because whatever goes out of your mouth, you should do. This is exactly what Yeshua says. He's like some of you are saying, oh well, I didn't vow by you know the gold of the temple, only the temple. Well, you know, well, it's not by the you know I, I didn't make a vow by the altar, but by the offerings that are on the altar. And Yeshua's like, look, if you say yes, if you say no. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Do what came out of your mouth. Basically what it boils down to. And it, it was just really fascinating how, again, Yeshua is playing off of the Torah. Because, of course, he, he, he's the Torah master, right? He knows it inside and out. He is it. it. He is it. Um, but uh, but he's, he's, ex, he's expounding on it. And it's, I, I don't know, I, I really do feel like it's always fun when you find these passages. And you're like, I don't know, like, what it was about this passage that Yeshua just loved it. I mean, it's like he pulled so many teachings out of this one. Um, in, in general, it seems to be, I feel like this, the apostles and Yeshua are big fans of Deuteronomy. There's a lot of stuff in Deuteronomy that they, they play off of. Amen. Getting towards the end here. Any, any remaining comments? I got one more last thing. I was going to mention the father, father-in-law, I mean son, father-in-law argument. Yeah. So, that whole shotness thing. Oh, the wool. Well, the linen and the wool. Right. Yeah. So, uh, Rashi and his son-in-law, Rabbeinu Tom, were arguing over what is shotness. And Rashi's saying, Everything that you got to do to start with the plant you're plucking and so forth and moving forward and then turning it into either wool. If you put those, if they're mixed together as you're doing it, that's shot as you can't do that. Rubino Tom says, oh, wait a second. At any point in here, if you mix it up and make something new, a new thing, like your... Um, it's no longer wool and it's no longer linen. It's a mix. This, is, this garment is a new thing made out of linen. linen you know. Then Rabino Tom said it was bad. And uh, Rambam said, you're both right. Anything. If it's mixed at all at any point or if it's a new thing, you're done. So the idea being that Rashi was leaning towards one of the other things that was forbidden, uh, plowing with two different animals, two different types of animals, and Rabino Tom was leaning toward the other side, um, which I can't remember what the seeds, the, uh, planting the seeds together. So he's saying, if you plant the seeds together, you're going to get end up with something different when it comes out. And the other one was saying, if you start with something that shouldn't be together, it's bad to begin with, kind of thing. And Rambam was uh, saying. But, you know, it's always, I think, interesting when we see Rashi and Ram, Rabbeinu Tom yeah. at odds. You have to move this Except way or this that's way. That's right. Yeah, let's, do it, let's do it this way. The, uh, the important thing, yes, yeah, are the exclusion for the wool and linen. Um, oh, yes, sir. I was just wondering about planting seeds together. In the vineyard, what happens if you make a hybrid grape? Like, would it have to be something that you're mixing? Or grapes? Um, I, I am. Are you talking about a... a Cabernet Franc with a, because 
That's cool. They're both grapes. I'm sure. Both, it's a grape becoming <laughs> another different kind of grape. If you plant grapes and try and merge them with cantaloupe, that's a problem. Yeah. We should be a grape. The cantaloupe grape. Yeah, something. It's common. It's common for some people to do things like planting beans along with corn or whatever else because there is the sense of. But as scripture kind of gives us the idea, if you're going to do that, if you need to do that kind of thing to restore the soul, then the answer is rotation, not planting the same. And every seven years. Yeah. 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 The, the goal, according to the commentary, is you don't want to end up with something different. And just to clarify, the, the prohibition is actually against the planting, not against the eating. So like, for example, I think strawberries are technically a weird hybrid bank like 200 years ago, not anymore, but like a long time ago. And that's totally fine. So like once it's already been hybridized, then you are allowed to eat it, but you shouldn't be creating it. Genetically altered wheat, yeah. Maybe you shouldn't be eating it anyway. Yeah, seedless grapes. That's right. Seedless watermelon. Oh, I'm trying to figure out how they get the seedless watermelon. How do they Plant do the water? That? that was Jerry Seinfeld. Um, <laughs> they, uh, so, a quick comment on the, the mixing of the, of the linen and the, of the wool. Um, just to clarify, the sages go out of their way to specifically say that's speci that is definitively linen and wool mixed. So, the fact that you have a polyester cotton shirt, that's fine. Because that's not the ingredients we're talking about here. If you happen to have Possibly a, a, a you know linen tag on your wool jacket. Also, not necessarily a problem. Although I'm not the master on shots nets. Um, there are a whole weaving. big table. It's more the weaving. Of yeah. It. yeah. So there are creating specific. a garment that weaving is, is actually made now out of fabric that is not wool, nor is it linen. It's wool and linen. Yeah. It's not talking about wearing two different clothes. Under most most rabbinic authorities, would not say. If you're wearing linen, you can't wear a wool coat. Wool right. pants, linen shirt, right. yeah. If you are wearing... Very, very weird to wear wool and linen together because linen is a summer fabric and wool is a winter fabric. Why would you be doing that? Together? There is an example, and, though. Of, and, and weaving them together would be... Why would you do that? Two, uh, about a month or so ago, though, just as a heads up, if you had come to Bellatora in your linen shirt and threw on your wool to lead over top of it, that was okay. But they can be mixed. They can. That's be. the whole point. Z -Z and, is and the high priest garment. Exactly. Is, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, mean, well, I know, but I just meant like if you're going on like zz.com right now. Should be I, wool. I think it's all wool. Should be wool. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um. So, uh, any last comments? And last one, one last place, the very end of your portion. So, going to Amalek. Um. I've two, two remembers. Yeah, you got to remember. You got to remember to forget. No, there was two remembers in this one. Uh, you had to remember Miriam earlier. Oh, right. Now you yes. remember Amalek. Right. Um, and then remembering not to forget. Right. Got to erase the memory. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, um, got, you got 20, you got 74 men's votes just in this portion. That's amazing. Uh, but Amalek, Amalek, I, I, I like, I, I agree, Rabbi Mike had this comment, and I, I, I'm with him, that there is, I think, a healthy, I don't want to say ever spiritualized scripture to the detriment of the, of the plain text. You don't do that. Plain text is true, period. But you can find 
additional meaning to the scriptures that may be applicable to you that may not be in the plain text. And I think with Amalek, I see so much of Amalek as being like your personal issues. Amalek to me is like you have a, you have a, a sin that you struggle with, a bad habit, something like that. That could be your Amalek. And it says here, it's interesting, it's like um, it attacks your weaklings, it attacks when you're afraid, it attacks you when you're, when you're struggling, right? And that's, I feel like that is true for some of us. We have those times where we have something that, you know, catches us when we're tired or weak or whatever, or maybe in the middle of warfare, as the beginning of this week's Torah portion began. Um, and it talks about this idea of, like, your response to that needs to be to erase it. You don't play with it. And I think that sometimes is a mistake. It's very easy to almost, one of the first steps in repentance is to actually regret doing it. If you think to yourself, oh, remember the day when we used to, you know, do heroin in the backyard. That was wrong, but it was fun. It's like, that's not how you should be responding. <laughs> Never did that, so I could throw that out there, you know. But the point being that, um, uh, the point being that, like, that's the example that I'm trying to get at is saying that, like, you don't look fondly on your sin. And I think that that's part of what this is teaching us is, like, you need to erase that memory. If you're looking back on what you did wrong the, with, with like a kind of a, a longing or, well, it was a mistake, but boy, wasn't that bacon yummy, you know, whatever it might be. The point is that that, that becomes, it potentially starts to lure you back, right? It's, it's creating that desire in your heart again, and that's something that you want to push back against. Um, interesting, too, here, Amalek, this has happened upon you. Um, there are... Uh, there is another reference to that in this week's portion that has to do with the nighttime occurrence, and it also shows up in another cool place, Balaam. When God speaks to Balaam, it uses that language of happened upon them. Um, so it's almost like there's this, it's like Amalek was, I love the, the reference to uh, some, I can't remember who it is now, it um, talks about Amalek being almost like chance. Like Amalek, I think it's Rabbi Mike and Ishai Fleischer, they were talking about this idea that Amalek is like the embodiment of chance and fatalism blended. It's this idea that it's like, on the one hand, there's no, uh, it just happens, it just happens. On the other hand, it was meant to happen and you can't do anything about it. And uh, one of the things that Ishai Fleischer, or uh, Rabbi Mike said about this week's Torah portion is God's model of repentance is different than that. It's not fatalistic. Not only is it not chance, God's in charge, okay, but, um, there's not a fatalism because repentance can overpower quote unquote what was supposed to happen so to speak and the example of course is like Nineveh you know Jonah goes out there says gotta get all wiped out they all repent they don't get wiped out and uh, so Rabbi Mike is talking about that passage earlier in this week's portion where it says that the parapet the, 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 the fence around your roof he says it says the fallen one falls well the sages interpret that as saying well he was meant to fall he was someone who had done something wrong he was gonna fall but then they go on to point out that if you put that wall up, he doesn't fall. You do the mitzvah, he may fall on someone else's roof, but he's not going to fall on your roof. But the, 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 the principle being that what saves him? A mitzvah. A mitzvah changes his destiny, so to speak. He may have been meant to fall, but because of a mitzvah, he doesn't. And that is applicable to us with repentance. So you may have the, um, you may feel like, oh, well, I've, I've done A, B, and C, and the consequences, they're, you know, I, I think about the patriot, you know? I have long feared that, that, the, my, sins that my sins would come, back to would come back to haunt me, right? And this idea that somehow it's, a, it's over, and you might as well give up now. Go crazy. Go ahead and keep sinning because it doesn't even matter anymore. Where's my gadget? And instead, what God is saying is, 
No, the opposite is true. When you obey, you undo the damage you did in your sin. You actually have the capacity to change your fate, to change the consequences of it. Um, you actually have the ability to make something new, to be reborn, you might say. So um, as we come up on Rosh Hashanah and the Tosh Leek service where you're throwing your rocks into the water as, as, as symbol, symbolic of your sin um, being taken away um, into the deep, then I hope that that is inspirational, that you can say, you know what, this year I did do A, B, C, and possibly D, and all of those were wrong. But if I stop those, that was last year. It's like it didn't even happen. Amen. Yes, sir. Which is the uh, Yeshua's multiple parables about the lost item and the lost sheep. He left the ninety-nine to go to find the one. And the idea, that, the idea that heaven rejoices with repentance. Yeah, and even the prodigal son, where you see he comes home and there is a complete restoration of his place in the family. Um, so much so that it actually bothers the other brother. But the point being that, like. Because of his repentance, because he comes back with a different expectation, right? He comes back saying, I'll be the servant, I'll be the slave. I, I deserve consequences for what I did. And the father brings him back and brings him, makes him whole. That isn't to say there aren't consequences for sin. The point being that the idea is you don't have to be trapped by your sin. You can, you can, you can uh, set up a new path and a new life that's not haunted by what you did in the past through repentance. Um, and ultimately, God then, to talk about forgetting Amalek, God promises to erase that memory. Dr. Uh, Guthrie used to do a patterns of sin thing. Oh, yeah. It happens every time, you know, same time each year, right. you know, the kind of thing, and, and you can break those patterns. You know, repentance is what does that. Right. That's okay. um, the, uh, not to undo anything that you just said, which was excellent, thank you. Um, the commentary in the Gutnik talks about how remembering what Amalek did and eradicating Amalek have to be two different things. Mm. It's just forgetting what he did. That, right. That's not good enough. You have to remember what he did so when Messiah comes, he can be eradicated. So we need to prepare mentally to eradicate him by remembering what he did. Which in Italian is vendetta. V is vendetta. Mr. Martin, would you close us in prayer? Sure. Father, we thank you for our time together today. Uh, not only discussing the portion, but our prayer time and the time in the Torah this morning. And we pray, Father, as Joshua was talking about earlier, we would allow your Torah to change us into the image of Yeshua. We pray these things in his name, because of what he's done for us. Amen. Amen. Amen.